the legal cannabis industry has unlocked generational wealth opportunities across the country. But the industry's regulatory complexities, constant state of change, and speed of evolution drive confusion for entrepreneurs and investors alike. On this podcast, we'll interview the industry leaders who are shaping the future of the legal cannabis industry to help our listeners understand these idiosyncrasies. This is Cannabis Unlocked, hosted by Key Investment Partners. Good afternoon, everybody, everybody, and welcome to another episode of How to Invest in Cannabis. Today, I'm your host, Jordan Euclid, one of the founding partners of Key Investment Partners. And with me, I have Sam Scanlon as our guest from Houlihan Loki. Sam is a senior vice president at Houlihan Loki on the food, consumer, and retail group, uh, and has been in charge of uh, scaling and working for their cannabis investment banking practice. So, Sam, thank you so much for taking the time to uh, join us on the podcast today. Yeah, no, thank you, Jordan, and, and looking forward to the discussion, um, and happy to be on, so thanks. Absolutely. So maybe just to kick things off, would love to learn a little bit more about your background, your educational background, and then how uh, you went through your career to get to Houlihan. Yeah, sure. So uh, I'm a native New Yorker, so I'm based out of our New York office, um, did undergrad at Johns Hopkins, where more people become doctors than investment bankers, but <laughs> there are a few of us out there. Um, you know, I started my career off actually uh, for Booz Allen Hamilton, a large government consulting firm doing military work and uh, really cut my teeth there in terms of, um, you know, really problem solving and analytical skills. And, um, you know, I sort of refer to myself as a recovering consultant. Um, and from there, I went to NYU Stern, um, which is where I started working at Houlihan as a, as a summer intern and, and have been here ever since. Um, you know, my entire career has been spent here doing M&A, um, first as a generalist, and then, you know, over the last year and a half, uh, heading up our, our industry vertical in cannabis. Um, you know, and so, you know, one of the unique things is I'm not just an industry coverage banker, I'm a technical banker. And, and you know, that's how, you know, we're orged within the middle market. Um, and so it's, it's exciting space for us. Um, and we're looking forward to, you know, being a part of the next phase of it. Fantastic. And as you talk about being a part of the next phase, I know we've discussed previously that cannabis wasn't always a sector that Houlihan could participate in. And even still today, there are certain types of work that you can't do with plant touching businesses. So we'd love to just learn a little bit more about how the cannabis sector within Houlihan has evolved over time and what sectors you guys are willing to work in today. Sure. Yeah. So, you know, obviously, I think in the early days of cannabis, um, you know, what was happening in the markets was all IPOs and, and public equity in Canada. You know, that's not really who we are as a firm. So it wasn't really worth even addressing some of the regulatory issues. Um, but, you know, you, you fast forward a couple years ago and all of a sudden, you know, you started seeing a lot of consolidation, a lot of M&A activity. And that's only picked up, you know, since, you know, after Labor Day of 2020. Um, and, you know, that's really why we got into the industry. Um, you know, it's always an investment. You, know, you can't show up on day one and start doing deals. And so, um, you know, we're a publicly traded broker dealer. So we've got our, our own um, legal issues, just like everybody else that we're working through. Um, but, you know, it's important, it was important for us to get to really know the industry and clients. And so, um, you know, we've, we've sort of had three areas where we were cleared to do anything, which is, you know, obviously in Canada. Um, hemp CBD, which has had its own challenges as a market, um, and then obviously in the kind of emerging ancillary sector, 
you know, the service uh, businesses that support to cannabis companies that can't get it elsewhere. Um, <clears throat> and then obviously plant touching, um, we're limited. We, we can't do work out of a broker dealer. So no M&A or capital markets yet. Uh, I hope to change that imminently <laughs> within the next weeks or months here. Um, obviously a lot of tailwinds in the industry um, and that's changing for us. Um, we do do work for plant touching companies in terms of our valuation group. Um, you know, so we've, it, it's not my practice area, but I do partner with my valuation team to do um, equity reorgs, uh, Q of E work, purchase price accounting, um, anything like that, that's, you know, considered more internal than we do outside of our broker dealer. Um, and so that's helped us get to know a bunch of people in the space. I think it's helped us get a lot smarter <laughs> because um, you can't just run or you, you actually have to look, smell and, and touch things a little bit. And so that's been good for us. But, you know, I, I was obviously put in my role to, um, to obviously to do M&A in the space. So we're eager to be able to do more of that. Fantastic. Well, it's, it's exciting to hear that, you know, internally you guys have been able to access more and more subsectors within cannabis. And I think that's, you know, broadly a trend that we're seeing across the investment banking and asset management sectors within cannabis. Yeah. And, and it's been an evolution too. I mean, there were certain things, there were certain parts of the ancillary market that we weren't comfortable with at the beginning, if it was promotional, um, there were certain services within our, our valuation group that we weren't comfortable with, i.e. Q of E's. And so um, it, it's been an evolution um, and, you know, we've got one more step to go. <laughs> and, uh, obviously, the elections helped all that, you know, things like safe banking, you know, don't solve problems. But, you know, every little bit starts kind of pushing it over the edge. So, yeah, yeah, absolutely. That, that makes sense. And we'd love to kind of come back on, on safe banking and, and what that's going to look like. Um, but before we get into that, you know, as you're seeing a whole bunch of deal flow, and I'd have to imagine you're seeing more, you know, probably significantly more companies looking to uh, enlist your services to help raise capital than you're actually able to on board. And so we'd just love to get your thoughts on, you know, where you're seeing some of the best growth areas within cannabis today and, and a lot of interest from investors for those sectors as well. Yeah, sure. I mean, look, there, there's no shortage of people that are looking to do things, um, you know, whether that's raising capital. Um, you know, which is something that's a little earlier stage than what our capital markets group does. Um, but, you know, we're in the business of, of helping people with advice. So there, there are ways to kind of help guide them without actually being in front of a capital raise. Um, you know, where we're seeing the activity, we're really seeing a bifurcation. Um, and, you know, the, the best operators in the best states are getting a ton of interest. Um, they're getting very profitable, um, you know, and ultimately that's leading toward a lot of M&A. I mean, you've seen the surge of M&A in Massachusetts. Uh, you've seen, you know, pockets in um, Pennsylvania that have been very active um, in Arizona and then, you know, Illinois. And, and you're going to continue to see that um, because we're talking to, you know, entrepreneurs and private companies every day that, you know, are looking for somebody to help them navigate the market. Um, and I like to say the, the market for corporate control in cannabis is only getting more crowded. Um, when you see, you know, Ascend, Verano and Parallel entering the public markets, you know, and there'll be more that come over the next six to 12 months, um, that really changes the landscape. Um, and so it's, it, it's exciting, but you're also seeing California do a lot better. Um, and you're starting to see activity there. And we expect to see a lot more. It's the biggest cannabis market in the world. Um, you know, and then you, you look a little bit at the ancillary side of the market and, you know, what you're seeing is big splashy deals, you know, like Dutchie, 
Um, you're seeing some of the more, you know, MarTech platforms are doing really well and some of the more specialty areas. But there are parts of the market that are kind of, you know, a little bit softer because, you know, in the ancillary market, you've got to make the business case that you can be, you know, you have the right moat, um, you know, to be able to fend off the traditional strategics when they all enter the market, just like, you know, with service providers and everything else, you know, us as banks, the law firms are going to have to deal with the same thing. And, you know, I think there is a way to build a competitive moat and there are some really great companies out there. And then there are some that are, are going to struggle if the competition opens up. Um, and so, but I also say it's, it's dynamic, you know, companies that were, you know, considered to be the greatest thing a year ago, all of a sudden people start to question things or things that were considered commodities are starting to become value add. Like uh, we, we've seen that on the lighting side a little bit, um, where it's not just about putting up racks of lighting. <laughs> it's about, you know, control systems and technology and LED and different spectrums that can grow your cannabis better. And it, it just kind of speaks to the broader, you know, innovation um, that's happening in the industry as it grows up, which is just exciting to see every day. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's exciting to see every day. And, you know, I think it's, it's a really good point you bring up about how sectors and companies that were once loved a year ago or, you know, are total opposite today or vice versa, you know, sectors that maybe were a little bit overlooked are starting to get more interesting. And I think it's also a function, you know, one, obviously, most of these companies are very early stage. And so execution is everything, but I think it's also endemic of the fact that cannabis is such a fast moving industry regulations change quickly and have can have incredibly uh, uh, meaningful impacts to these companies, you know, profitability and ability to generate revenues. So it makes sense that, you know, there can be quite some fast transitions that happen within the industry. Yeah, no, it is. And, and, and that's part of the excitement, right? I mean, I, I joke around with people that one of the favorite one of my favorite aspects of this industry is you could pull 10 different smart people in the industry and I guarantee you're going to get at least seven or eight different opinions. And I don't just mean different opinions. I mean, opinions going completely in opposite directions. And, yeah. and, and that's just, that's a lot of fun, <laughs> especially when, uh, you know, your craft is M and A, which is, is all about strategy and disruption and being ahead of the market. And so, you know, that's, that's the exciting part. Very exciting. So we'd love to talk a little bit about who's actually deploying capital into cannabis today. I mean, what have you seen in terms of the investor makeup, particularly, I'd say, since the November election with the blue wave and it being increasingly apparent that cannabis legalization is imminent? Have you seen more institutional investors coming into the sector or are you still seeing it predominantly being driven by high net worth individuals and family offices? Yeah, I, I mean, I, I think it's still being driven by the same, you know, high net worth and, and family offices, and then also just some of the, some of the private pools of capital within cannabis, you know, that have grown, <laughs> you know, like folks like yourselves, um, you know, so, but I kind of look at it as money's kind of leaking in, right? And so it's, it's not really a tsunami yet. It's really just people crossing the picket fence, so to speak. And, um, you know, I, I think they are, there is some institutional capital, but I think it all depends on how you define institutional capital, right? I mean, it's not Fidelities and Black Rocks of the world. It's, it's smaller credit funds that are starting to look at the space. It's, um, you know, smaller institutions that are starting to do it or, or frankly, just more high net worth individuals. Um, and, you know, we've seen traditional pockets of, you know, private equity firms that are 
eager to get into it and have their own unique dynamics where they actually can. You know, they obviously have LP issues, um, which obviously you guys are familiar with with your background. Um, but you know, one of the it, it's sort of like there are two there are two main issues there, right? The hurdle is not just um, regulatory and being comfortable investing in this sector given the federal dynamics. It's also getting comfortable with the valuation. You know, you can't just sort of show up and and sign a deal in sixty days in this industry if you haven't been in it, um, because the the comp the complexity is so significant. It varies in every state ecosystem. Um, it varies across companies. Um, and it's just, it, it's hard for people to, you know, get their hands around valuing something at 10x forward revenue. <laughs> it just, you know, um, obviously in the cannabis market that, you know, those, those types of numbers have been seen for certain types of businesses and the growth in the industry has supported it, but it requires what I'd call kind of an education that takes time. You know, I, I was talking to um, a pretty significant cannabis operator who, you know, has been able to get some some more institutional capital, like more on the, um, uh, you know, more on the, um, uh, you know, more on the family office institutional side, I would say. Um, and they said they've been courting these these people for years. And so, you know, one of the things that we do in the market is we're always talking to our traditional guys about, you know, do you want to talk about cannabis? Do you want to start getting in there? And we're starting to, we're starting to push them and educate them to kind of get them over the line, but it, it's still going to take a little bit of time and we haven't gotten a um, watershed moment yet. Sure, sure. You know, and that's an interesting point on the watershed moment. I'm, I'm, I'm curious to get your thoughts, drilling in a little bit to your comment about traditional private equity, right? And, and so for listeners to give them a little bit more context, to think about, you know, the traditional private equity players of the world historically have not invested in cannabis, um, most likely given the regulatory dynamics, but additionally, most of these large institutional private equity funds have what are called vice clause restrictions placed by their underlying LPs, which say they can't invest in any quote unquote sin related industry, cannabis obviously included, meaning that even post-legalization, theoretically, they wouldn't be able to invest. Now, I think that obviously the exact provisions are different firm to firm, and some have a higher risk tolerance than others. But you know, I think our read internally is that once you see one of these blue chip type private equity firms purchase a cannabis company, most likely it'll first be an ancillary business, but you know, we, we could see a plant touching business as well. And it seems to, to us, as we talk to you know, colleagues from our past lives in the traditional finance world, it sounds like a lot of folks are kind of just waiting for a firm to be the first mover. And then that's really going to be the green light that lets a lot of other private equity firms come into the space. And I'm curious to get your thoughts on if you think that's an accurate read or not. Yeah, look, I, I think at the end of the day, there are all different types of private equity firms, right? The, the mega funds, the middle market funds, you know, growth funds, all different, all different types. And, you know, I definitely think once you see one or two go, a lot will come, but a, a bunch of them just won't. You know, I mean, the, the larger funds, you know, are, are writing check sizes north of a billion dollars on everything. So, you know, I think somebody made a joke to me the other day that, you know, I don't know, Blackstone could just buy the industry. <laughs> um, but, you know, in, in the middle market, you know, in, you know, funds, you know, two billion and under, you know, those check sizes could be meaningful. And some of it will have it in their DNA to be trailblazers um, and others won't. <laughs> um, but, you know, they, they invest in beverage alcohol, although not everybody in, um, 
you know, the industry does, but in general, they'll stay away from tobacco. Um, some will do some firearm stuff, um, which also falls into that category. Um, so it'll, it'll be interesting to see if they sort of take the beverage alcohol approach or they take more of the, more of the tobacco approach. Um, we'll just kind of have to see how, how things evolve. But at, at, some time, at some point in time, they're in the business of putting capital to work in value-added ways with return profiles. And so those that jump over the line, frankly, are, are going to reap the rewards first. Um, my personal thesis is actually that I think some of the credit opportunity funds out there um, that have been doing debt lending um, might actually be the first ones to cross over before the equity guys. Um, and part of that thesis stems from you don't have to worry about the valuation. <laughs> right. I mean, you can take warrants as part of the deal if you want, you know, with a lower coupon, so you get upside or something. But, you know, that market's become very crowded and, and folks are finding it hard to differentiate themselves in it. But in the cannabis market, they can get a much, much greater alpha um, by doing that. Um, so I think that's that's going to be an interesting dynamic that, you know, we want to see how that evolves. Sure, sure. No, I think that's a great point. You know, we're seeing some fantastic opportunities on the credit side as well. I mean, especially from a risk adjusted perspective. I mean, you know, GTI, I think recently raised debt at a 7% interest, which was well better than pretty much anyone else of their peers have been able to do. But even still, you think about GTI's revenues, their profitability, the collateral of their assets. I mean, 7% would be astronomical if they were in any other industry, right? Yeah. I mean, if forget, if forget even just an asset coverage. I mean, that, that's one times EBITDA. It's less than one times EBITDA. Yeah. Um, and obviously EBITDA in the industry with 280 is a little bit different, but still, you know, that's somebody who's got real, real free cash flow for it. Um, so it, it, it's going to be interesting um, because let's put it this way for that type of deal in a traditional market, pricing would be 3% or right. something. Like that. Um, so, <laughs> you know, guys in traditional markets very happily, you know, lever them up. To, to get a eight, nine percent return, which is way less than you know what you see, you know, in other types of deals out there. So yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, and then wanted to drill down a little bit about what you were talking about with regards to you know the Blackstones and the KKRs of the world needing to deploy call it a billion dollar equity checks in the market. Frankly, there's just not that many companies of that size quite yet, right? So that's certainly an inherent barrier to them getting into the market yet today. Would love to get your thoughts on uh, the uh, the sell side as well, right? So obviously, uh, you know, before Houlihan and some other middle market banks got into cannabis, the industry was really run from a sell side perspective by brokers, sorry, by mom and pop brokers, kind of boutique bankers that were willing to get in early. Now you've seen Houlihan and some of your more direct competitors get into the space, but we really haven't seen any of the bulge bracket banks like the Goldman's and the Morgan Stanley's of the world get in yet. So I'm curious what you think will be the driver that causes them to get in and, and you know, when you'll see competition from those folks. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I think, you know, it's one of those things where it gets back to the same comment around private equity. I think you'll see middle market guys get into it first. Um, and a lot of it has to do with, it's going to move the needle for them. They're also not as large organizations. They can be a little bit more nimble about making decisions because at the end of the day, you, you got to make a conscious decision to take on the risk. Um, you know, I'm sure they'll all enter the space as soon as federal legalization happens. But, you know, I'd love to know somebody who's got that one, that crystal ball to tell us when that's going to happen. Um, you know, because I, I don't think it's happening within the next five years. Some people may disagree, but 
um, you know, that's sort of the obvious hurdle. But at the end of the day, it comes down to a business case, right? I mean, if, if you're passing up on, you know, a significant amount of business in a sector where you could be doing things, then it's very different. Um, and I think the first thing for larger firms is going to be being traded on, had to have the larger cannabis firms traded on public exchanges. I think that's, until that happens, you're, they're just going to kind of be on the sidelines. Um, but it really just depends on where the activity in the marketplace is. You know, we in our regular way business don't compete with the larger firms in general. You know, we're middle market focused. It's one of the reasons why we actually think we're incredibly well suited for the industry because, um, you know, the needs of, of those client bases are very different than a more corporate culture and everything else. And so, you know, I think it's just a function of where the opportunity is, because if the if the opportunity is not there and not significant, it's not worth the brain damage of of, you know, frankly, having to make some legal risk decisions. Yeah, yeah, yeah. that makes total sense. And I think, you know, as you think about that legal risk, I know we previously talked about there's the actual risk of the industry and the perceived risk of the industry. And it does seem that over time, as you see more states legalize, more momentum at the federal level, the blue wave obviously helping that momentum, the perceived risk has certainly come down pretty dramatically. Um, so, you know, you'll likely see more coming in over time, but I think to your point for really those bulge bracket banks to make a move, you're probably going to need to see some major regulatory milestones like federal legalization. Yeah. And I also think you're going to see a little bit more of, because at this point, most of us will, will agree the risk is theoretical, right? Enough stuff has been happening and nobody's, as, as you know, nobody's going to jail or getting prosecuted for being in this industry. Um, it would help to have, you know, something like the coal memo reinstated, obviously. Um, but the risk I think the larger firms are going to have is the reputational risk. Um, I think that's sort of why you've seen, you've seen that on the law firm side too. You know, that's why I think the large law firms, frankly, are advising folks on the risks in the space, but they don't want to work with the companies and it, it has nothing to do with um, a risk for them. They, they view it as a, a reputational risk. Um, and so I, I, I don't know this firsthand, but I would surmise that's probably a similar issue um, at Bulge Brackets. And, you know, having a balance sheet also adds an additional layer of federal regulation and whatever. We're, we're an independent advisory shop. And so that, that kind of works to our favor as it does to some of my peers that, that have focused on the space as well. Um, doesn't solve everything, but it, I think it gives us a little bit of a leg up. Sure, absolutely, absolutely. And so um, we'd love to learn a little bit more about which specific sectors you know, you're seeing the biggest funding gaps within the industry, right? Is it debt or equity? Is it on the ancillary plant touching side, you know, private versus public? Just would love to get your thoughts more broadly on that sense. Yeah, so I mean, I, I, think, I think there's a funding gap for everybody. I think some are able to fill it better than others. Yeah. Um, and it gets back to my point of it, there's almost kind of like a bifurcation in the market, right? And so, you know, the, the larger public guys that are, are generating real free cash flow you know, we're just, it's easier for people to get comfortable with that, um, you know, because it's, it's a publicly traded company and you see it. So we definitely see more trouble on the private side in terms of funding, um, just because if you're doing rounds, it's, it's, it's hard to stack up $20 million, a million bucks at a time, if you can even get that. Um, and so that's, that's been a challenge for the private guys. And I think that's why you're seeing more people go public. Um, and more people looking to sell out because at some point, 
you know, if you can't, if you don't have the public currency, it's harder for you to acquire and gain the scale you need in your markets, right? And that's yeah, a common, yeah. uh, common theme you're seeing in the market. Um, I actually see the debt side um, funding gap getting bridged a little, um, little more so than the equity side. Interestingly, um, you're starting to see more proper, you know, BDCs out there. Um, you know, AFC Gamma, obviously, you know, you see the money that they've raised or yeah. IIPR. Um, and so there, there's a lot of money flowing into that side because I think the folks that are, are backing that understand that there's real asset value and they're covered. Um, you know, whereas on the equity side, you got to get comfortable with, with very high valuation multiples. So yeah. um, I actually see a closing on that side more, but it's really turning into a haves and have nots. Um, you know, those that have great businesses are finding it very easy to fund themselves, um, partially internally. But, you know, if you think about states like New York and New Jersey coming online, you know, if you talk to the major operators in those states, the amount of capital that's going to be required to build those out, you're talking hundreds of millions of dollars to be able to do that. And so, you know, the, those numbers aren't still aren't flowing into the industry just yet. Um, and so there's there's still a funding gap for sure. But, you know, it's definitely bifurcated to haves and have nots. So, yeah, well, that makes sense. And I'm curious to get your thoughts on um, the CSE, which is the Canadian Securities Exchange for folks who aren't familiar. The CSE is actually a, a public exchange up in Canada that a lot of cannabis companies turn to predominantly, I'd say, 2017 to 2019 timeframe as a way to access capital because private, e private equity in cannabis was so scarce, especially at that time. And so we've, what, I, what we've seen is that you know, a lot of folks who went on the CSE maybe frankly regretted that decision just because there's less liquidity on the CSE and it can you know, create some uh, confusion in the story. So I'm just curious if, if you're still seeing a lot of folks turning to the CSE or instead trying to really just build out their platform and waiting until federal legalization occurs so that they can list on the NICE or the NASDAQ. Yeah, I mean, I think it really depends on the facts and circumstances, right? I mean, yeah. I think everybody agrees that the, the CSC is not a ideal exchange to be housing these companies. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I, I've seen private operators who say, you know what, I have the capital I need and I have enough to do in the markets I'm in. I don't need to be going out buying things um, and therefore I don't need the public currency. So why would I deal with the headache? You know, however, if you're if you're if you feel you're tapped out in your existing markets and you want to enter new markets or you need to augment through acquisition because of the regulatory environment in a certain state, then it's very different. And all of a sudden you're putting yourself at a big disadvantage if that's what your strategy is. So, um, you know, those that are looking to build through acquisition, I don't think really have a choice I think they up there. Um, but those that are just looking to execute on their plan and are well-funded in the private setting are, are quite happy to keep doing it um, because their strategy is not M&A right now. If that changes, then all of a sudden it changes. And, you know, I actually think you might see some of these companies create, you know, merge together on the private side and create much more significant scale amongst private operators. And then that's how they'll ultimately, um, and it'll be more like merger of equals than, you know, true buyouts. Um, and so I, you know, that's one, that's one trend that we think we'll see. Um, but again, that, that sort of depends on the avenue to go public because it's, it's not as easy to do so in Canada and it's expensive and time consuming. So that makes sense. 
And how about the SPAC market? You know, we've obviously seen like in, like in other traditional capital markets, cannabis has raised a lot of capital on, in the SPAC markets. We've seen some deals get announced and closed. So we'd just love to get your thoughts on the SPAC market more broadly. Yeah, I mean, the, the broader SPAC market outside of just cannabis, and I've done a decent amount of work on, on some deals in that in my prior life, um, and obviously the SPAC market was white hot through really Q1 of this year, um, and it's, it's gone completely dead since, <laughs> despite record issuances. Um, and, and the cannabis market in SPACs has kind of been the same. Um, you've seen a bunch of deals get done that have been super successful. You've seen a couple of deals that we'll see if they actually get there. Um, but, you know, uh, you know, and then there are also, you know, I'm sure some deals in the background that are trying to be had because there are still cannabis focused SPACs out there. Um, and it just it really comes down to understanding what the SPAC tool is. Um, and, you know, the best explanation I've ever gotten in my career is to look at a SPAC as a Swiss army knife. Um, it's, a, it, it's really not an alternative to an IPO. It's really to sort of solve a problem for you. Um, and you know whether that's being an over-levered balance sheet or having to buy out minority shareholders or some other complications to going public, which i.e. having to go through the IPO process on the CSC <laughs> is one, um, it makes sense. But you know, without, you know, without a real pipe, um, it's really tough. And so, you know, you see a deal like parallel with a committed pipe and that gets done. Um, you see other deals with much smaller pipes or non-committed pipes, and it's much more challenging because people get to vote with their dollars um, and they have the option to just take the money back. Um, and if, if there isn't enough cash in the account, you, you know, you can't close. So um, it, it's still going to be relevant in the industry, but uh, what I kind of tell people is it's it's not for everyone. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that makes sense. And just to give some background to our listeners, if they're not familiar with how SPACs are structured, what it typically means is a SPAC will have a certain dollar amount, say $200 million committed to it. Uh, but those underlying SPAC investors, once the deal is announced, have the opportunity to either you know keep their capital in the SPAC or to redeem that cash and not end up investing because they don't like the specific company or they don't like the terms of the deal or whatever it may be. And so typically when you have a SPAC, you'll raise a pipe behind it, which stands for private investment in public equity. And so the pipe is used to really help to account for those redemptions, should they be higher than expected to make sure that you're still funding enough cash uh, onto the company's balance sheet. So I'd be curious, Sarah, I mean, how have you seen the fundraise, fundraising landscape for pipes develop over the last few months, especially as the market's cooled off and you know the pipes don't necessarily offer that same type of redemption provision that the SPACs themselves do? It's a complicated tool for sure. Um, so, yeah, yeah, sure. Um, and then circling back to uh, the Safe Banking Act, which you mentioned earlier in the conversation, would love to get your thoughts on. You know, what what do you think are the likelihood that Safe Banking Act would get passed during this congressional session, and what do you think the actual implications would be for the cannabis industry in the capital markets environment? Sure. Yeah. You know, I, I've seen enough politics in my life to not handicap what will get done or won't get done. Um, what I would say is it should get done. Um, there's no reason it shouldn't. Um, you know, and I think, to be honest, the impact would be more, more symbolic in terms of helping the industry as opposed to actually solving people's problems. Um, you know, and, and part of it depends on what actually gets passed. 
you know, safe banking at its core is really just to protect deposit, you know, institutions to be, you know, not worried about AML and that kind of stuff. And, and that'll certainly help a lot of cannabis operators. I don't want to poo poo that, but, you know, safe banking at its core is not just going to open up U.S. listings. Um, you know, there's been a lot of talk about capital markets inclusion and, you know, Lord knows I've been laser focused on this and I can't get anybody to explain to me exactly how that's going to work. Um, you know, the best explanation I've gotten is, you know, there might be some loopholes that get opened up through safe banking to allow people to list. And um, absent that, I, I kind of just see it more as symbolic that that the two um, political parties in this country are, are you know, at least close enough united to advance, um, you know, the regulatory environment for the sector. Um, but until somebody actually gets to, to list publicly or we actually see an increase in access to capital from it, because it doesn't necessarily have to be U.S. listings, it could also be institutions saying, you know what, this is okay, but nothing in safe banking directly solves it. And that's always the issue in cannabis. It's like, it's like everything pushes risk down a little bit, but nothing eliminates it. Um, and so, um, it'll, what it'll do is it'll, it'll allow some people to, to cross the fence a little bit, but it's not going to knock down the fence yeah. in my yeah. opinion. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think that's similar to our view internally is that, you know, it'd be great symbolic win, but from an actual practical standpoint, you know, it's not going to open up the nicer, the NASDAQ to plant touching businesses, you know, it's not going to open up interstate commerce, certainly. So, you know, still still going to be a lot of issues to overcome post-safe banking. Yeah. And, and, and some of that might not be that bad, right? Because it's important for the industry to continue. The industry has grown up with the guardrails that are in place. And I think the one topic I think everybody can agree with is if you took down all of those guardrails in one day, you know, that that's not good for anybody. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, it's, it's not good for the employment. It's not good for the small businesses. It's not good for people in certain states. Um, and so it's one of those where you really don't even want that necessarily. Yeah. That because, yeah. Um, there, there's been too much money that's flowed into assets and created jobs and tax revenues in local jurisdictions that are key that if all of a sudden that went away, that that's not doing any anybody good from a social equity or you know, a, a, a local tax jurisdiction funding perspective. So totally. And I think a perfect uh, analog to that is you look at what happened in the hemp industry, right? With the farm bill getting passed at the end of 2018, you saw an explosion of growers an explosion of brands, you know, which led to plummeting in, in the price of biomass. Obviously the FDA not issuing guidance yet has been another overhang, but still, you know, we, we view in a lot of ways the THC market and the supply chain to be much more established because you have such strict regulatory barriers and capital intensive needs that you inherently are forced to create very well-established, well-capitalized players to really, you know, drive the industry forward. Yeah, exactly. I mean, there, you know, the, there are barriers to entry right now. Um, and, but there's also enough competition such that, you know, I mean, that's one of the issues you saw in California. Um, it took, it took them, you know, it was sort of overtaxed and overregulated such that people wanted to keep buying, you know, marijuana products from their local drug dealer because it was, it was cheaper and more efficient. <laughs> right. And so it's, it's, it's important for the States to, to set these, these companies up to be successful um, because, you know, you, you want successful enterprises because it gives healthy employment, it pays local taxes and, and all that good stuff. And so it's gotta be done the right way. 
Um, and so, the, yeah, exactly. The, the, the hemp industry is a great example. But just imagine if the hemp industry was able to incubate for five to eight years, and then all of a sudden the farm bill ripped it all down. <laughs> and obviously there was a hemp industry before, but not nearly to the same scale that it is. It just create, it would do a lot more harm than good um, in, in terms of how things grow up. So, right. Well, great. Well, Sam, thank you so much for taking the time here today. Um, so to the extent that there are cannabis companies that are looking to pursue strategic M&A opportunities or fundraising support, uh, how can they reach out to you? And are there specific thresholds or revenue metrics that you typically like to work for with the companies that you take on as clients? Yeah, look, I mean, we, we need a certain amount of size and scale. Um, you know, and so we're, we're really more focused on strategic M&A than, than capital markets. I think, um, you know, we hope that the market evolves in the next, you know, year or two on that front. But, you know, I mean, we're, we're looking to meet, you know, good operators of scale that are looking to have somebody help them kind of think through what their options are. And so, you know, I would say, you know, from a, from a revenue threshold, you know, companies that are kind of in the north of 20 million is sort of a, a good, is a decent starting point, depending on what it is. Uh, obviously, in the ancillary market, there are some, you know, that are smaller than that, that have, you know, real, um, you know, much higher values, you know, in terms of, of mandates that we can take on, because obviously, uh, I'm just one banker in a broader firm. And, you know, we've all got ecosystems we got to play in. Uh, you know, we kind of our jumping off point is, you know, really even enterprise values, you know, north of 50 million. So you kind of got to get to the 20 million of revenue to roughly kind of get there. But um, obviously companies grow into size too. So <laughs> um, it can be a little broader that way. Sure. Fantastic. Well, Sam, thanks again for taking the time here. It's been a super fun uh, discussion for me and would love to you know, continue it again at some point. No, absolutely. I mean, it, it, this is a fast changing industry, so it's, it's great how they to have these types of conversations and, and appreciate you having me on. And this is all great dialogue. And, you know, we could be talking at the end of the summer and it's a totally different landscape. Yes, which is yes. Look forward to it. Yeah, no, that's a great point, Sam. So for everyone, this is May 25th, 2021. I'm sure everything we've said will be completely dated within two to three weeks, but you know, <laughs> hopefully, hopefully relevant at least for today. Awesome. Thank you. Yep. Thanks so much, Sam. Have a great rest of your day.